Good to see you all. I know you're out there. We can't quite see you, but we know you're there. This is The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson. I'm Charlie Gibson. Hello, amorphous people out there listening. I'm Kate Gibson, his daughter and co-host. And we're super excited to have you back or for the first time. If you're here for the first time, we're about to talk to an author. That's our format. And this week, I'm really excited. We have Rebecca Mackay, whose new book, I Have Some Questions for You. Boy, I don't, in some ways, I don't know how to describe it because it defies pigeonholing in a genre. It is an exploration of the justice system and injustice within the justice system. It is a mystery. It is a a woman coming to terms with her past. It's lots of different things, but all of it adds up to a page turner, I think. This is really the third week in a row we've had a very readable sit down and just enjoy it kind of novel. We had Julia Utsuka talking about The Swimmers. We had Amity Gage talking about Sea Wife, and now Rebecca Mackay talking about I Have Some Questions for You. And they're all just really, really good reading. If you want a novel that you're going to enjoy, this is one of them. One of the things I was interested that you asked her, and I want to give a definition of it for people who are listening. You asked her if she's a pantser or a plotter. Those who have listened Uh, to this podcast for a while know But we should explain that a plotter, obviously, is somebody who sits down and plots out their novel in great detail before they start. A pantser is somebody who writes by the seat of their pants, who just makes it up as they go along without really any concept of where this book is going to go. And she has a third way, which I thought was a very interesting. Well, we'll get into that in the conversation. I think you can know a pantser because they say things like, I don't know, it's not quite where I expected to end up. Or, I don't know, that character sort of surprised me. And I think what's interesting is Rebecca is sort of both. And I think also one other thing I want to say about this book before we talk about this conversation, this book is a terrific page-turning story, but it has larger implications. And it really speaks, I think, to the numbness this country feels about violence towards women, women who are kidnapped, assaulted, human trafficked. I mean, we have a lot of these stories in this country. And I think there were so many that she really just kind of wanted to say to the reader, hey, guys, there are so many of these that you're not even noticing anymore. And I think she does a beautiful job of that. Yeah, she does. And she uses a little bit. We talked about the way Julio Otsuka uses lists so beautifully. And I think she does as well. She'll give us an example of that when we talk to her. You know, I go back to the original podcast we did with Niall Williams, who said for him, he just has a first sentence and he puts the thread through the needle and just slowly pulls it out each day as he writes, not knowing exactly where he's going to go. I was fascinated by Nelson DeMille, who said, Sometimes when he starts a novel, he doesn't know who the, who the murderer is. He figures that out as he goes along. It's, it's, as I say, this has become sort of a masterclass on writing, and so many people have so many different approaches to it. It's always fascinating to hear what people's processes is. If I was going to be a writer, I think I'd be a seat of my pantser, whereas my sister, who was always really good at planning things and was always really good at being responsible, she would probably outline everything to a fairly well. <laughs> she, she would. It depends on what your comfort level is, I think, also with the unknown. I have some questions for you. Here is our conversation with Rebecca Mackay. Rebecca Mackay, it is a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. And the newest book is I Have Some Questions for You. And we have some questions for you, strangely enough. As I'm reading this, Rebecca, I'm thinking what, and I hate to pigeonhole a book, but what genre is this? Am I reading a novel? Am I reading a mystery book? Am I reading a portrait of a person? 
I, I don't know. How do you characterize it? Yeah, you know, it, it, the, the term literary fiction kind of sounds like you're implying that other fiction isn't literary, which is never my implication. But literary fiction meaning, you know, it's it's not trying to be a certain genre. It's just trying to be good. It's trying to be the kind of thing that you might read in a book club or in an English class. And so I'm always working in that genre in times I'm playing with another genre. So I'm having a lot of fun with some of the conventions of mystery here. This book is unique. I don't think I read one of these in a long time, if I ever have, where the reader, the person who's reading the book is a main character in the novel and the narrator is addressing them. I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that and talk about like when you started the novel, was that already a part of it? Or did that become something that you did as you were writing the book? You were like, ooh, this is kind of cool. I should do it this way. Right. The you of I have some questions for you, we learn pretty quickly is, and, and, and this is not a huge spoiler because we learned this just a few chapters in, but is this woman's former high school music teacher. And she was very attached to him in high school as an adult, she's starting to realize that he had some really inappropriate behavior and, and might actually have been more involved in the death of her classmate than anyone ever thought. So it's simultaneously a first person book because Bodhi, my main character, she's telling her own story, I, me, but it's also a second person book because someone is being addressed. And certainly, you know, the reader isn't being asked to cosplay as this guy or anything, right? We're reading it kind of as the third point of that triangle. That second person allowed me to have the voice really directed and really specific and for there to be a real reason and moment for her telling this story. And it, and it allowed a lot of her anger and frustration to come out. Writers talk about being either a plotter or a pantser. <laughs> so what was the seed of this story? And are you a plotter or a pantser? Right. I'm a marinator, <laughs> third choice, which means that I have always some competing ideas, novel ideas. You know, I think this is going to be the next thing. And then while I'm really busy finishing the last one, editing, promoting, Everything is taking shape and, and and usually one of them starts to win out. Other things start to kind of stick to it. Uh, you start to get a, a big messy idea, which is when I know I'm ready. I don't want to start with <laughs> a little pinpoint of one idea. I want to start with a big messy thing. In that marination phase, the great thing about it, I can make these huge changes in my head without having to undo any typing, without having to go in and delete. I can go, wait a second. No, she's a, she's a dancer. No, she's a... Uh, the first grade teacher, no, she's a film professor, and then be doing research around that, thinking about what that would mean before I ever sit down. A little context, Bodie Kane, your protagonist, is writing this book in two time frames: current in that she comes back to her prep school to teach a mini course in a mini semester. And she's a podcaster, <laughs> which <laughs> appealed to us. <laughs> and she gets her kids to envision podcasts that they would get into. And the other time frame is 1995, when she was a student at this school and there was a murder committed. And the kids get into doing a podcast about the murder. I ask all this because basically when you're writing about 1995, there is a good deal that you write about violence against women. And Katie said to me as we read this book together and talked about it a lot, Mm -hmm. She said, I think Rebecca is angry. She's angry about the kind of violence that takes place and took place against women. Fair? 
when I was in high school, the idea was, you know, if someone, someone did something that we would, I think now say was wildly inappropriate, you're supposed to laugh it off. And if you can't, it's because you're a prude. You don't have a good sense of humor. There's something wrong with you. It's your fault for not finding this hilarious. And Me Too was really the first moment when, because of things other people were talking about, other people were posting, I was looking back and going, oh my God, I was not the only one upset by things like that. It was not my fault for not finding it funny. And God, I'm, yeah, I'm mad about it. We, we're all mad about it. We're mad about it whether we acknowledge it or not. We carry around that, you know, those memories, that anger sometimes about huge things that are pretty obvious, sometimes about the accrual of a lot of small things and often a combination of the two. It's interesting that you say that because Me Too, you're right. I hadn't thought about that. Me Too went from the rapes of Harvey Weinstein down to everybody who tells me every day, you're so much prettier when you smile. Right, right. And it really was a spectrum that we examined. And I think what you did really well, and I'm going to ask you if it's okay to do a reading because I want our readers to get a sense of the way that you do this. You come back to it a few times in the book. On page 127, it starts a USA Today and it ends with a scarred tree. I wonder if you wouldn't mind reading that for us so the readers can get a sense of the way you do this. Happy to. And before you read, I would mention, we just did a conversation with Julie Otsuka, who has written a wonderful book called The Swimmers. Yeah. And she writes in lists. It's an amazing technique that she has and very spare. Yes, it is. You do some lists in this book that I think is a wonderful technique. Mm. And this reading that Kate wants you to do is, I think, exemplar of that. Thank you. Also, I mean, I'm a huge Julia Otsuka fan. I think she's a genius. This will not compare, but I will read this. A USA Today lay on the counter, smeared with someone else's coffee, the front page devoted to the same story that had been on the news the other night, the one where the men finally told about the priests just decades later, and everyone lauded their bravery, the one where the women came forward after five years, and everyone asked why they hadn't spoken sooner. The waitress saw what I was reading. She said, you'd think if she was all that troubled, she'd have told the producer. It was the one where 15 women accusing the same man of the same thing was too much of a coincidence. They must have coordinated their stories. It was the one where the witness wasn't considered credible because six years earlier, she'd accused another man of the same thing. And it was easier to believe she was lying than that lightning loves a scarred tree. Mm. You do something really beautiful because it isn't just your anger that is expressed. I think you do a nice job of telling the reader we're all numb to this. So what happens, and I think people might be able to pick up from that, there are these interludes where there's a story ostensibly going on in the news that everyone's talking about and that Bodhi is is really upset by. But what I've done narratively is to make it all of these cases simultaneously. I'm kind of refusing to pick one uh, or she's refusing to pinpoint it to one case. It came about as a solution to a problem that I had. I was writing and I, I wanted there to be this case in the news that was really getting to her. I didn't want to pick a real life case. I didn't want it to mm. be, you know, the Christine Blasey Ford testimony is happening this whole time in the background. And I have to really give that its due. And I also didn't want to invent a case and have to give it all these details and draw our attention away from the main story. So I decided to try, you know, what would happen if it were just all of them (laughs) at once. And the reason it stuck was that it worked because it was tapping into this sense that I felt of just overwhelm of, of this 
pile, this never ending cavalcade of these stories. You could focus in the same way on something like police brutality, the way that these stories mm. just pile up. Certain mm-hmm. ones capture your imagination, but there's always a new one. Mm-hmm. You know, you could do that about any number of mass shootings, right? That, mm. God, there's another one, there's another one. Some of them break through and we really obsess about them. Some of them are just this noise that we have to learn to live with. Omar Evans is convicted of the crime after it occurs in 1995. And the podcast kid, the kids, one of the kids and then two of them eventually want to get into the case and whether Omar was wrongly convicted. And it made me think of these innocence projects that exist today where there are students or lawyers who are uh, working with in cases where they think somebody was wrongly convicted. And you talk about in the book how difficult it is not just to find the innocence of the person convicted, but then to get the courts to reverse the decision, the conviction. I had to do a lot of research on this. I'm not a lawyer. I definitely did not want the Perry Mason version of this. And reality is these things are next to impossible, not only to overturn, but even to get a retrial. Mm. The amount of, you, you can have actual DNA exculpating someone and you still can't get a retrial. In order to research that, I I worked closely with a woman who's a wonderful public defender in New Hampshire. So it had to be very specific to New Hampshire law. You don't just Google stuff and then put, you know, what you found that might only be true in California. But I was, you know, I heard the most heartrending stories from her about the people she's worked with, the uh, asking her these questions about retrial. And she's a lifelong public defender and her saying, I'm basically the only person who's ever gotten a retrial on something like this. And I only got one. I think in the world of true crime podcasts and, you know, the Dick Wolf law and order, it ties up in an hour. We've gotten too comfortable with a narrative of how easy it is. And you do a nice job of that. You do a terrific job of talking, as we talked earlier about these lists and sort of talking about how the reader has become sort of numb to the violence against women. I want to shift because I read The Great Believers. Mm. Uh, I love that book. And I want to ask, this question is related, I swear. So that book for our listeners is a sprawling epic of AIDS in Chicago in the 1980s and how it decimated the community, paralleling with a story in 2015. It seems to me when I read that book that you were angry about how long this country willfully neglected the AIDS crisis. And I was interested because now I read The Great Believers. I've read, uh, I have some questions. For, would you categorize yourself as an angry writer? <laughs> I don't think so, really. No, no. But I do think that, um, and I don't, I think you'd have a hard time looking back at like my previous novel or my story collection and finding things like that. No, I mean, I think I want to write from a place of passion always. And if you look at the world through a realistic lens, you're going to find injustice. And if you get everyone's, you know, point of view, you don't set up bogeymen who, are just the bad guys and they get taken care of. If you actually look at what actually happens, it's infuriating. I think a lot of the frustration, the anger, the injustice stuff that came through in both novels had more to do with my research than with what I went in already wanting to write about or already knowing. With The Great Believers, I certainly knew that people had been horribly misused by the government in the 80s, but details of the reasons your insurance company would find to drop you and not cover your medications those details, those were new to me and they were infuriating, but they came about because of a dedication to really granular research, sitting down with people who'd actually dealt with this stuff. 
And you find this kind of this moment of emotion, um, whether that's joy or sorrow or anger, whatever it is, when you find those moments of emotion, of course, you put that in. I think in I have some questions for you. Similarly, we have these moments of kind of outrage. We have moments of real bitterness, real anger. We also have moments of tremendous joy. Mm. You know, she's looking back in many cases with tremendous gratitude at this school where, you know, even though things obviously went wrong, where she got what she considers to be a tremendous education that got her out of a a pretty bad home life. I'm always really interested in, or not even trying, but I'm I'm also um, constantly finding moments of humor. So, you know, it's impossible for me to I've said like, it's impossible for me to write anything that's not funny. And it's also impossible for me to write anything that's not dark. I want to come back a little bit to, um, I have some questions for you. It takes place in a New Hampshire boarding school. Mm -hmm. And I've had experience with a lot of kids who were in New England boarding schools. And you have a very good sense of it, particularly setting it in February, where I could feel the cold as you wrote about it. Did you go to a boarding school? Yes. So we were talking before, and we, I only got half the story out before we started recording. I went to the same boarding school that your brother went to, which is now where I live. I was a day student, actually, at a boarding school near Chicago, and then went away to college, was in graduate school on the East Coast, met my husband. I dragged him back to Chicago because I had a job teaching Montessori Elementary School. He was already a private school educator. He applied, and the place he got the job was my old high school. Hmm. Long story short, we've now lived on campus of the high school that I went to as a day student. We have lived on campus here for 21 years. Well, Rebecca McKay, it is wonderful to talk to you. Mm. It is a cliche to say that a book is a page turner. <laughs> Everybody always puts that in their blurb on the back of a book. But I have some questions for you. Is it's a page, page turner. turner? And we loved it. Uh, thanks for being with us. Good to talk to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. And some rapid-fire questions for Rebecca Mackay. How long was your first draft? It was probably like 140,000 words, which is not something my editor was happy about. We cut it a lot. 
If I weren't a writer, I would be... I'd probably still be teaching Montessori elementary school. I loved it and it was never boring. When do you write during the day and for how long? And do you write every day? I do not write every day. Um, And I I hate when people put out that advice that writers are supposed to. It's completely unpredictable. Sometimes during the day, sometimes at night, sometimes at Starbucks, sometimes at home. I get my best writing done at artist residencies when I can really get out there for two weeks or something. I write really well on airplanes too. I think writing is the hardest thing in the world to do. Do you have to force yourself to sit down or is it a pleasure? It's both. Revered book that you're perhaps sorry you read. Oh, oh, I see what you mean. Like the one everyone else loves and I didn't. You know what? I tried Middlemarch huh. early in the pandemic. I was like, this is the time. And I was going to do it on audio. And you download it and it's like, you know, 79 hours. <laughs> might have been better if I could skim or something. It's on audio. You can't skim. But God, like I... I really wanted like the main story with the, with, um, you know, this terrible guy she marries. That was great. And then it just got into like small town politics. And I, I couldn't, <laughs> I stopped. Most influential book in your life. The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin, which was my childhood favorite. Hmm. Really? Yeah, it is. And I'm joking that I'm constantly just trying to rewrite The Westing Games. It's all these people you know, kind of trapped in an apartment building and, and um, there's a murder, which it's like, okay, that's, you know, that's what I wrote. That's, that's also my second novel. It's just constantly what I'm trying to do. Lots of different points of view. We stole this question from Stephen Colbert, but in five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Oh my goodness. Doing good in the world. Mm-hmm. Love it. One of the things I most admire about my co-host, as she continues to say, but my daughter, is that when she finds an author that we're going to talk to that she really likes, she goes back and reads the earlier books that that author has written. And you were very impressed with Rebecca Mackay's earlier books? I was. I was. And by the way, I call you my co-host to get away from the obvious nepotism angle this show may present. So you are my co-host. That's, just, that's where I put you. Um, the Great Believers, which was nominated for the National Book Award, is a sprawling epic of AIDS in the 1980s. And it's really the story of, you know, in the 1980s, homosexuality obviously was not as accepted as it is now. A lot of these guys were on their own. They were being kicked out of their homes. They were forming their own families in large cities and members of those families just started to die. And this is the story of a woman who sticks by her brother when her family kicks him out and she becomes involved in his sort of made family. And she ends up sort of holding their hands as they all die. It's a very searing portrait of America at that time and all of the work America was doing to ignore what they thought was a gay male disease. It's a really beautiful book. And I'm amazed considering I have some questions for you and the anger of the great believers. You know, when we talked to Rebecca, she's this cheerful, warm, fun person who is clearly very involved in wanting to write social justice. And uh, you don't usually expect people who are that involved in social justice to be so cheerful and warm, but she was. And I recommend The Great Believers as much as I recommend. I have some questions for you if you have a chance. It's a tough read, but it's worth it. And you've told me that I should read it. I, I am really impressed that you go back and read the earlier books written by the authors. You did it with Julie Otsuka. You did it some with Amity Gage just in the last couple of weeks that we've talked to, and you did it with Rebecca Mackay. I'm the guy who's retired, 
and I don't read as much as you do, and you've got two kids, and you're getting a graduate degree, and you read about three times as much as I do. I don't quite know how you do this. I'm interested in getting your speed read measured, how many words per minute you read, or maybe you just skip over stuff. I don't know. No, Um, no, 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 no. I don't want anybody at home to think I skip over anything. Now, I will admit to this, though, because I'm averaging somewhere about 16 to 18 books a month. And I will admit this, that I listen to books as well as read them. And that sometimes I listen to them at time and a half. So like there may be a little bit of sort of manic chipmunk narrator that comes out of my phone in the interest of. If it's a nine hour <laughs> book, time and a half, it's still you're going to read it It's in six or hear it in six hours. I don't know where you get the time, kiddo. I just don't. No, but that's going to remain a mystery for the bookcase. Uh, Our bookstore this week is a really interesting one. This is brand new. It's in Boston. It's uh, Beacon Hill Books. It's, It's right on Beacon Hill on Charles Street. Melissa Fetter started this store and she's doing really well. I just thought she was a fascinating case study in how you start a bookstore. Melissa Fetter, Beacon Hill Books in Boston. Melissa Fetter is joining us of the brand new Beacon Hill Books and Cafe in Boston. And I was with somebody from Boston recently, Melissa, who said to me, your store, even though it's new, has become something of a phenomenon and people are lined up outside. That's unusual for a bookstore. This is true. In fact, when the tour bus goes by, the uh, you know narrator says, and look at that, a line outside a bookstore. <laughs> like what really, what threw us into... It, We opened October 1. Let me begin with that. So we've only been open since October 1. But someone posted a video of the store where they narrate as they walk through all five floors of the store. And they posted it on TikTok. And that then had over a million views. And as a result, the crowds became so unwieldy that we had to start a queue. And I would man the lines. It was mostly on weekends that it became problematic in the fall. I would man the lines and talk to people as they were waiting. What was it, do you think, that caused those million views? Right. A very fair question. Okay. So if you were to visit the space, which I hope you both will at some point, you'll see that it's a very unique take on what a bookstore should look like. Imagine a five-story townhouse. The ground floor is the cafe. And then floors two, three, and four are entirely bookselling space. And it's set up like a residential home. There's an emotional response people have, as I am told, again and again. And if you look at the comments on our Instagram, people feel really welcomed and inspired when they're in the space. And the good news is that, yes, a lot of people are there to take their own picture and put it on their Instagram feed, but they're also buying books. We opened October 1, and we've already sold 39,000 books. Well, I'm not an Instagram guy, but I love the pictures of the store that are online on your website. And it looks like something really out of colonial times. I felt like I was looking at at some place in Williamsburg. It's really gorgeous. And I know you feature interior design books, but you've obviously got a good sense of it yourself. I do. And it's something that as a layman, I've always been interested in. You know, I am not a professional designer, but I love historic preservation. And this project really was about taking a beautiful building from the early 1800s, which, by the way, had been the workshop and home of Gilman Jocelyn, who was the preeminent globe maker in the early 1800s. 
And I love that as a parallel to a bookstore where it's learning mm. about the world and discovery and etc. And in fact, I was even able to purchase a few of his original globes. You talked about the importance of your curation. What's your overall curation philosophy at the store? And a very important aspect of our curation was that we wanted the bookstore to truly reflect all the different voices and lived experiences. And it just delights me to no end how often someone will turn to me in the store and say, I am so impressed by the diversity of voices that that are represented. And this goes from the cookbooks that are being sold on the ground floor to the children's books that are being sold on the fourth floor. And it stands out. You know, if you're standing and looking at our biography section, it strikes you and not in a pandering way, but in a very genuine way that we are sharing the stories of everyone. Our bookstore is there for everyone, not just the residents in within walking distance on Beacon Hill. What were some of your favorite titles of 2022? Our absolute number one book to be sold at Beacon Hill Books is Make Way for Ducklings. And (laughs) 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 it's just not surprising that we've got a lot of tourists coming through and they love picking that up. But also I commissioned a children's book author and illustrator to write a book that relates to our bookstore. And it's very, very hyper-local. It's about Beacon Hill with wonderful illustrations of the hill. And we've sold 2,000 copies of that book since we opened. It's called Page of Beacon Hill, P-A-I-G-E. And the author is Sarah Brannan, B-R-A-N-N-E-N. And she has won awards for her children's books. She's an author and illustrator. And all that I asked her to do was to write a story about a squirrel that lives in a bookstore on Beacon Hill. The squirrel is our our logo. And we've really developed that. We have a little vitrine in the store where the children can look in and see where the squirrel lives. And there's a tiny little front door adjacent to our main door where the squirrel comes and goes. And um, we've had fun with it. Of course, the official name is the Beacon Hill Books and Cafe. How is the cafe driving book selling and vice versa? And are those two symbiotic? We're serving a proper breakfast, lunch, afternoon tea. We have an evening format, which is more like a bar situation with beer, wine, and you know, bar snacks. In my mind, it would be like having a house without a kitchen. The kitchen is where everyone gathers. And for us, the cafe provides that. We have a place on Cape Cod and we'll be up this summer. Okay. See, you need to, the next time you're passing through Logan Airport, we are just 15 minutes from the airport. So you let me know. Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, Melissa Fetter, who painstakingly and lovingly developed what is a beautiful looking store. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It is a fantastic looking store. Thank you. It's special. Melissa Fetter of Beacon Hill Books. I'm going to go there for high tea on a Sunday afternoon this summer when I'm up in Massachusetts. It is a beautiful looking bookstore. As I said to her, it looks like something out of Williamsburg. I really uh, think she has done a magnificent job in creating a wonderful atmosphere to go in there and pick out books. And in this age, I just want to say one more thing, in this age of Amazon and online social media, everything, the idea that there are people lined up around the block to go to a bookstore, we're doing okay. Indeed, that's the case. We want to make you aware once again of the people who make this podcast possible. And after that, a final thought from Rebecca Mackay. 
The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. I feel like as a writer, the greatest gift I've given myself is that I get to live many, many different lives And I also think that's something that really only reading, reading and writing are the things that can give you that. You can watch someone on, you know, you watch a great show, but you're fundamentally looking at the people and, and literature is the only way you can look through them and with them. And and it's the only, you know, if you don't do that, you only get one life, which kind of (laughs) sucks. The last words of the podcast will be, it kind of sucks. in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.